So welcome everybody to today's episode of the Independent Teacher Podcast. And I'm really pleased to be joined by Dr. Jan Eichhorn. Welcome to the show today. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Now, we're going to be talking mainly about politics and particularly about young people and politics and how they engage and how they become involved in the political system. So could you start, Jan, by just telling us a little bit about what you're doing now, your research interests and how you became involved in this particular area, this really fascinating area, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and thanks for giving me the space to, to talk about it. So I'm a senior lecturer in social policy at the University of Edinburgh. This is kind of my academic home where I conduct a lot of research. And it's a nice space because social policy is very interdisciplinary. So we work on issues that relate to sociological, political dimension of um, engagement, but also on things like education and how those things connect to each other. I became really interested in all of this um, basically since I've been a teenager, because I used to be really, really active in student politics in Germany, where we have formal structures for student representations. And I was involved at the state level, engaging on education policy from a school student perspective, basically, and campaigns and so on. And I was always interested in the policy world and how basically kind of that school side connects to the politics and the policies of, of things. So in my research, I get to engage with some of those things. I was in Scotland in 2012, finishing my PhD. The Scottish independence referendum started. And one of the first announcements was that the voting age would be lowered to 16 for it. So I became really interested in that question. Well, what happens at age 16? I wasn't in favor or against of it. I wanted to study it, kind of the social scientist in me wanted to study it. But we did have good data on 16, 17 year olds' political attitudes because it wasn't something anyone was really interested in very much because they couldn't vote yet. So based on that, I managed to get some funding and started my first project. And since then, I've been working on a range of follow-up projects. We've now looked at kind of what has happened to those young people seven, eight years later. But I've also been working with colleagues across different countries who carry out similar work either as researchers or also activists, election officials, politicians. And in my other role, which is with the German think tank Depart, which is a not-for-profit think tank in which we work on the practical side of political engagement, we've been trying to develop tools for people who try, for example, to develop good implementation of these things. How, how do you help basically make, make use of those sorts of opportunities when young people are enfranchised? So it's kind of my research home is at the University of Edinburgh and my practice home is, so to speak, in Berlin. I'm just going to ask you a question about when you were a teenager. So this idea that you were really politically active, really involved, and you talked about those different stages. Was it a bit of a culture shock when you came to the UK in terms of the level of maybe lack of engagement of some young people in the political system? So it's really, really interesting because there's some similarities, but indeed there were some really big differences for me in terms of um, political engagement. So when we talk about kind of capital P political engagement, kind of political parties and so on, um, both in Germany and the UK, the vast majority of young people don't engage with that particularly much. I've run loads of workshops and so on. And if you ask young people, have you ever participated politically in some way, very few will raise their hand. What is really interesting, and that is similar across both spaces, is that actually when you ask young people, well, have you ever 
done something like joined a demonstration, not bought certain products because you felt was wrong, signed a petition and so on. Way more hands go up virtual or real. And it's one of those interesting things when I talk about political engagement, voting is one of those dimensions, but for me, political engagement is much broader. Sometimes these two things get played against each other, but actually what we see is young people who become civically engaged or kind of small p politically engaged are also more likely to then engage with the capital P political process. And that is really interesting to me because that's quite similar in the UK and Germany as well. The difference, that was the thing that really surprised me from my own practice, was that in Germany, some of the kind of political engagement steps happens through the school process. So in Germany, it's very formalized. You elect your class representative from when you're eight years old or 10 years old, depending on your state. You then elect your school rep, your city rep, your state rep. And in my state, the board of the state student council met with the minister of education on a monthly basis. When the Parliament's Education Committee had a hearing on a new bill, we would be presenting. So as a 15-year-old, I was regularly in my state's parliament to speak on behalf. I was the legally elected, one of the legally elected representatives to speak on behalf of 300,000 school students. When I came to the UK, that was one of the really interesting things for me, that things have changed now a bit, and we have things obviously like things like the Scottish Youth Parliament, for example, in the Scottish context, that kind of takes some of those rules. But when I came here, I heard for the first time in my life about things like head boys and head girls who were appointed by head teachers and so on. To me, that was a culture shock. Because to me, in school, everything to do with basically student representation was through elections at, at all levels. So it was interesting to me. We see civic engagement amongst young people in the UK as well. But the role that kind of where it starts for some of them, basically, that, that I was used to in the German system, that didn't exist in the same way. So in these kind of formalized structures. So that was really interesting to me to see some of those differences. So so just um, taking us back to that um, comment that you made there about the Scottish government lowering the voting age um, because of that, that independence uh, referendum, has it had any impact on those young people in terms of any kind of political engagement, whether that's with a large P or a, a small P? Um, absolutely. Um, so we conducted two sets of studies. One set was between 2013 and 2015 and the lead up to the referendum afterwards. And then we had a long break because we, we didn't get new, new funding until recently. And now around the Scottish Parliament's elections of 2021, we did a follow-up study um, to see what happened later on. In 2014-15, it was quite remarkable that we were able to measure quite significant effects. So one thing that we could see is that 16 and 17-year-olds turned out in higher rates than 18 to 24-year-olds. This is quite interesting because people said, is that just because of the referendum, for example? It probably isn't because we now have more countries where the voting age was lower to 16. So we have similar data from Austria, several Latin American countries like Brazil, like Argentina. And the findings by now are fairly consistent. When the voting age is lowered, 16 and 17-year-olds turn tend to turn out 
at higher rates than slightly older young adults. This seems to be a fairly, fairly strong finding, which is interesting because typically what we see in kind of the early years of voting is a U-shaped pattern. Turnout tends to decline in your early 20s and then picks up in the second half of the 20s again. And that makes sense because in your early 20s, for a lot of young people, there's a lot of instability in their life. They move around a lot. They might not be at the right place and register to vote. There's loads of things happening. What's interesting, at 16, 17 year olds, not all, but most young people live in a more stable situation at home and attend some form of education, formal education. And that means that often the first voting experience is embedded in a more social context. And we know people are more likely to vote if people around them vote, if people around them speak about politics and so on. So all of that comes in. So this is something we could see already quite well in 2014-15. On top of that, we could see that in Scotland, we did a study where we then in 2015, ahead of the general election of 2015, we compared 16, 17-year-olds in Scotland to 16, 17-year-olds in the rest of the UK. And what we did is we asked, if the voting age was lower to 16 for a general election, how likely would you be to turn out? And again, the participation, the hypothetical participation rates of Scottish 16 and 17-year-olds were much higher than for their peers in the rest of the country. Now, again, we could have said that could be a Scottish referendum effect because there was a heightened political feel. But what we could see is that effect was much bigger. The difference between Scotland and the rest of the UK was much bigger for 16, 17-year-olds than for the rest of the population, the adult population. So there seemed to be something specific to the group. And again, because it corroborated findings internationally, it seemed like something was going on. However, and that's now the interesting question, what we didn't know is whether any of that would be lasting because it still was happening in this heightened context of the Scottish independence referendum. But now in 2021, we did a follow-up study. So we looked at these young people later on who are now in their 20s, and we compared basically amongst those now 16 to 31 years old in Scotland, depending on their first election, whether their first election was one that they could have voted at 16, 17 or 18 or above, who basically has higher turnout rates, if at all. And this is interesting because some of the people who got to vote in the Scottish independence referendum got to do that 16, 17, some for whom it was the first vote were 18 or older. Similarly, 2021 Scottish Parliament elections, some were 16, 17, some 18 or 19, because previously the general election 2019 for some people was their first vote, but only if there were 18 or 19 at that already. So we had a whole mix of young people in Scotland now in their late teens, early 20s, who could either vote at 16, 17 or older for the first time. And what did we find? Those basically aged 16 to 31 in Scotland whose first election where they could participate was one where they were enfranchised at 16, 17, turned out in higher rates in 2021 in the Scottish Parliament elections than those whose um, first election was one with voting age 18. And that is really quite striking. We've taken into account in this to make sure that other factors are accounted for, things like the social class of their parents, their gender, and so on. So we've taken other other things into account. And still, this effect is robustly there. Again, this mirrors the findings we have from Austria and Latin American countries, but we also have some time series. So overall, it seems like for voting, 
there is a lasting effect of votes at 16. So we can now say two things. One, 16, 17-year-olds turn out at higher rates as first-time voters than first-time voters who are 18 or older. But second of all, if you start at a higher rate, we still see a drop in the early 20s, but the drop isn't as deep. And therefore, basically, turnout rates stay, stay higher overall into the 20s. That seems to be the finding on turnout. Um, so that's quite a lot to take in. But the core message is there seems to be a lasting effect on turnout. Having said that, and just maybe one quick sense, we do not see the same lasting effect, however, for the small p political engagement necessarily. And that was a bit of a disappointment in a sense. So in 2015, we saw that young people in Scotland had higher rates of engagement than their peers in England, for example, in terms of demonstrations, petitions, and so on. That effect hasn't been maintained on top of this to the same extent. Um, so there, so we see a positive effect on voting, but no additionality effect on some of those kind of softer forms of political engagement. And so the question is, the big question, I don't know if you can answer it, is why? Why, why is the, the lack of engagement in those other kinds of activities? We think that there's a mixture of things, but probably one of the most important things is that one factor that affects political engagement across all levels, voting and non-voting a lot, is still really important. And that's the influence of your family and your parents. It's not so much anymore the influence of who you vote for. We see much less kind of transference of voting patterns across generations, but the question whether you engage with politics. Um, and that's basically a classic social class point. People are from higher socio-occupational classes have a higher tendency to be engaged politically, which is also why we see them overrepresented in politics to some extent and overrepresented in civil society engagement as well. Sometimes they're even more so. Um, and that gets transferred uh, generationally. Now, that is still taking place in Scotland. What's interesting, actually, 16 and 17-year-olds in Scotland, we've seen again in 2021, are less unequal in their participation than older generations. But once they reach kind of their later 20s, the inequality is there. So we have that parental influence that hasn't gone away. What is the strongest counter to that parental influence? It seems to be that one of the strongest thing is good civic education. So what we see is that basically young people who receive good civic education, and I can say a bit more about what I mean by this, we can have a bit of a chat. It's not just learning how the law is made, but learning how to debate political issues, how to engage with them. And maybe we'll, we'll go a bit deeper into that um, because it's really interesting. But basically, if you receive this, you are more likely to vote, but you're actually also much more likely to be engaged in those things that you might not classically associate with politics. And as I've said, if you are more engaged in those things, you are also more likely to vote. So there's kind of interplay between all these things. Now, the problem is Scotland has a, um, a rule in its curriculum for excellence that all young people should learn about citizenship. That is, that is part of it. The problem is what that means 
differs massively. It differs by local authority. So the 32 local authorities in Scotland take decisions about their implementation. So in the Scottish independence referendum, for example, you had local authorities in which school were schools were told, you are allowed to have things like hustings in the school as long as there's also a classroom discussion and as long as both sides are represented. You had schools, However, at the same time, where basically the, the, it was said, you cannot talk about the referendum at all. Now, the evidence is very clear. If you do this in a qualified balanced way, young people are not unduly influenced. It's a myth that young people are easily swayed like that. Um, it's, it's just not true. And teachers are really careful about this in the Scottish context and elsewhere too. But young people who don't get the chance to do it are disadvantaged because what we see is a lasting effect. So in our study now, we've seen young people in their late 20s, if they remember having had classes in school in which they discussed politics, they are more likely to engage politically. So there is a lasting effect. So now the question is, which schools are the ones who tend to, not every single school, but tend to be the schools where you see more of that civic engagement teaching that goes in depth and spends the time, is schools that are better resourced. Schools that are better resourced are more commonly found in areas that are more wealthy. So actually the inequality effects at the moment might be exacerbated to some extent by the inequality of provisions of civic education, good civic education teaching. We noted that in 2015, and the Scottish Parliament Committee that dealt with this actually had a provision calling on the Scottish Government, Education Scotland, to make sure that these things are done more uniformly. And that's something that hasn't happened yet. So to me, that is a strong, plausible explanation why we continue to see these patterns of inequality. We basically still have the parental socialization effect on your likelihood to engage, mm. but actually in schools, although a lot of teachers, a lot of schools try to do a good job, the schools that have more resources often can do more on it. And therefore, actually, the inequality problems are not being, being countered. That's really interesting. So the key to all of this is what we're doing in schools, isn't it, really, in all of our schools? I should say it's schools, but it's also actually education outside schools. So it's education in schools and it's education out schools. So we have been part of a project led, led by my colleague, Christine Hübner at, at Sheffield University. And we, we followed through qualitative research, the lowering of the voting age in Wales, um, which happened under very different circumstances in the COVID pandemic. It was very difficult. It didn't have as big an effect yet because it had to be done very quickly as well and so on. And one of the things that we saw there as well, especially during the pandemic, when schools were often online and you know, less able to engage, it's school education is incredibly important. That's why I talked about it. But also, there are obviously ways for civic education to happen outside of schools, in social clubs, in sports clubs, and so on. Those are places of learning about social and actually small p political processes. They're really important spaces of civic education. In Scotland, organizations like Young Scott, who, for example, aren't focused on capital P political engagement, like the Scottish Youth Parliament, who have their own campaigns and so on. They were really involved with basically making information available. So schools are really important. I'd love, I, I'm, I'm very happy to talk about it more. But when we talk about civic education, there's also space outside schools that is often not funded enough to do it. There's actually often a space that, you know, those sorts of initiatives that aren't capital P political 
don't get the sort of funding to engage in, in kind of also civic training, civic resourcing, although those space in particular for young people who don't do well in school, who might be dropping out of school. So there's a, a really, really important side, mm. in addition, outside schools that that we shouldn't forget. I often talk about the role of schools uh, because that's where, where I've done more work on, but I think that's a really important dimension to add as well. Okay. And you mentioned there Wales. My background is England. What's going What's going on there? Um, so there are campaigns for lowering the voting age that are UK-wide. Obviously, we have a big difference in England in that we don't have something like the English Parliament, like the, you know, the Welsh, the, the Scottish Parliaments that could vote on this. Um, so for the voting age to be lowered in England, you basically need a vote in the House of Commons, right, on, on an English matter. Um, and and there have been bills brought into the House of Commons on this. Um, so there have been bills brought into the House of Commons for the lowering of the voting age, but they've always been brought in by opposition parties um, who didn't have a majority, so it didn't go anywhere so far. Having said that, there has been um, conservative uh, politicians who have supported this for a while, including people who are part of the government. Nikki Morgan uh, supported uh, the lowering of the voting age, for example. We had several Scottish um, conservative politicians. So in 2015, when in Scotland the voting age was lowered, it was a unanimous vote of the Scottish Parliament. So in the referendum, the conservatives in Scotland were against. Afterwards, they changed their mind. It was Ruth Davidson then as the leader who kind of led that change. who became an advocate for votes at 16 uh, beyond that. So it's not it's not that every conservative uh, politician has been against it, but overall there's never been a majority on the government benches. That's that's I think important to to note. So the debate has been there, and there have been initiatives also in kind of some local authorities where those debates have happened about democratic renewal, city deals, questions about how can we involve young people at a local level. And there's been a big campaign by the British Youth Council, so a youth-led campaign as well on this. So there is momentum um, in in uh, kind of UK-wide and England-specific issues, but at the moment in the Conservative Party there there isn't a majority on this. Although there have been efforts, so a really interesting one was uh, one that the Electoral Reform Society organised, which was a, a kind of a brochure that was written with short essays by conservative politicians making the conservative case for lowering the voting age and why it's actually inherently conservative to give 16-year-olds to vote and in their interest. So again, some of those people I mentioned, like Nikki Morgan, were, were in this. So if you're interested in this, um, it's, it's yeah the Electoral Reform Society, a really interesting piece out. At the moment, though, if we look at it honestly, it is unlikely that the current parliamentary conservative group will change its view anytime soon. You can always be surprised about this in Germany. We have some of the states that have lowered their voting age with conservatives in government, um, because usually, but it's usually because they had a coalition partner who wanted it. Now, if you know, so that usually changes the dynamic, of of course. And I want to come on to talk, obviously, about. Uh, the international situation. Um, can you give um, some examples of uh, countries that are considering lowering the voting age? I mean, you've, you talked there about some that already have lowered the voting age, but is there a movement more generally around the world to uh, implement votes at 16? Could you, could you just talk about that? 
Um, yeah, absolutely. So it's 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 definitely an increasing thing that's that's going on. We've seen debates in a a definitely increasing number of countries where um, those those debates are taking place. So in Germany, for example, it's it's a bit like in the UK. It's a patchwork. You have some lender. Um, so the 16 states in Germany, where you can vote at state elections, in some only at municipal elections, somewhere you can't vote at all at 16. Germany has now lowered the voting age to 16 for European Parliament elections, but not for its own federal parliament, because that requires a supermajority that isn't there. So Germany is probably the most complicated, even more complicated than the UK on this. Um, you, even in the United States, where it would be very hard to do this at federal level, because that could be a constitutional issue. But in the U.S., you have, for example, in the state of Maryland, some municipalities that have introduced this, uh, because often municipalities have the right to do it themselves. And there are campaigns in cities like D.C., Boston, and so on, work on this. There's a campaign in Canada that is quite prominent. They're, they're making some uh, progress. And they have done something very interesting uh, together with similar to the campaign in New Zealand, they actually went through a political route, but also through a legal route. So there, they're kind of equivalent in a sense of their Bill of Rights kind of um, parts. Um, people bring forward the bills who are making the argument that voting age 18 in those countries would be discriminatory, actually, um, based on how otherwise like they stipulate that every citizen should be able to participate. Now, in Canada, this is in the courts at the moment. In New Zealand, uh, the Supreme Court has basically ruled that this is correct, that voting age 18 is discriminatory. So the New Zealand parliament is discussing this now and in quite controversial debates around this. And um, we've seen um, in recent years, um, in addition, Malta that has lowered the voting age. But we're seeing debates, for example, um, going on also in countries like Belgium, the Netherlands, Belgium lowering for the European Parliament elections, but again, not necessarily others. Um, so there's actually quite a lot of momentum. There are campaigns starting up also in other countries. Um, and what we've seen is campaigns are often really, really have best chances of success if there's kind of real youth involvement, if we really see young people at, at the center of it. It's quite interesting. We have um, some first indications of uh, some people trying to set up campaigns in Kenya, for example. So we're also going to other continents. There's a campaign in Moldova that has started. And there's a campaign in Ukraine right now of young Ukrainians that want to lower the voting age there. Can I ask you about the Nordic countries? Are they much further ahead than other European countries? Where they are ahead? Um, is um, certain aspects of civic education. So um, in Norway, there's a tremendous program at the moment of mainstreaming political and civic education across the curriculum, not of the, at the expense of other things. It's really important that this isn't just this is how parliament works, but a space for discussion, for deliberation, but learning how to have an argument, how to be able to have a debate that's qualified, how to critically look at evidence, how to critically reflect on what you find online. On top of that, we also see that mainstreaming is really important. So one thing that they're doing in Norway, which is really exciting, is to think about, you know, think of the examples that you had in your maths classes. You can probably remember in probability studies, a lot of kind of bags with red and blue balls and stuff like this. You remember probably a lot of cannonballs being fired to calculate velocities and so on. But 
when we talk about probability, why not use examples from election studies? Why not, you know, engage when you do statistics in school? Why not do it with social statistics, right? So there's actually quite a lot where we could say, let's shift examples into other spaces, um, not to do less maths, but to think about whether we can think um, more broadly about spaces that have come in. So Norway is doing some really, really good work um, in, in that regard, for example, as well. And then there's a final dimension. And again, some parts of Norway are good at this, but in Austria, there's some really good projects around this. And that is the question, not just do you learn about it in the abstract um, and discuss things, but do you understand school also as a civic space itself? So in other words, is school a space where young people learn actually democracy and practice? Do young people have the chance to not just talk about politics outside, but can they actually talk and engage in democracy in their school? Can they take decisions proactively, learn how to take these decisions? Not just, and that is a criticism sometimes of the German system, because they have one class rep who attends meetings and then tells people what happened, but can people be involved? Can people you know, have these sorts of deliberations? Is it an exciting project in the city of Vienna in Austria, where young people in their particular areas of the city actually um, send representatives from schools in a certain year group. They get together with city planners, discuss solutions from young people's perspectives, 14, 15 year olds, about how to change things. And they actually get a budget. There is actually a budget. They develop proposals with city planners and then young people vote on this and the things that are there will then get implemented. So there's a real trajectory where you see actually it matters, these sorts of processes. So it's those three things in schools that, that really, really make a difference. It's good civic education formally with this deliberative discursive element. Second, it's the ability to mainstream political questions into other subjects too. And finally, that question of do you get to live democracy or is it just kind of teaching it, but then saying to you, well, actually the teachers are gonna decide. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about young people as well and the way they acquire information. I know you talked about how they acquire information in school. The reason I say that is that so many young people will go on to social media platforms. They're not reading you know, newspapers like you and I read newspapers. They're not necessarily watching news channels that, that we would watch. And you know, their ability to actually retain information because of the, the idea of the, 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 the way they've become digitized citizens and their brains are working in slightly different ways. I think there's a question about whether, you know, that kind of approach is almost, you know, a threat to democracy. Um, what, what, what are your views on that about the way in which young people acquire information and the fact that they're digital natives? We need to equip young people with, you know, there are different terms for this, right? Digital literacy and so on. But they connect to some of the classic stuff about being able to critically engage with arguments, sources, um, those sorts of things. But we need to do this in a digital space, right? Because if used well, um, obviously, there, there are advantages sometimes of this. One one thing that we see with young people who are well-informed is that they sometimes have more complex views than adults because they don't just read this one newspaper, which in a country like the UK, where newspapers have very strong political alignment, of course, right? 
could be problematic. There can be something positive if you actually have a variety of sources rather than relying on one, but you need to have the competency to filter, to be able to understand what is good, what's bad. Again, some teachers already have great programs for this in the Scottish context and modern studies, for example, but you need the resources and time to do that, right? So that's that's really, really crucial. Um, so I think that there is an issue, but I also think it can be turned into something positive. The second thing is, and that's it's fascinating, really, the way we sometimes think young people engage with if I focus on political information online, is uh, social media is absolutely essential to it, but it's not as simplistic as we might sometimes think. So we've done a big project in Germany, but the, the findings are translatable into other contexts too, um, together with the uh, Bundeskanzler Helmut Schmidt Foundation. And in that we were studying how young people engage with political information online. We analyzed representative data, but also ran focus groups with young people discussing things. And a few things stood out. One, yes, social media, for those who get information online, social media is there. But what does that mean? What does that mean, getting information off Instagram, for example? And, and by the way, Instagram is the most important. Um, Instagram and YouTube were number one. TikTok is coming in, but for the younger, younger ones, under 20 in particular. Um, Twitter is one of the least important ones. Twitter is for those highly political. It's absolutely everyone who uses Twitter themselves overestimates how many other people use Twitter. So Instagram, YouTube, Instagram for shorter formats, YouTube longer formats, and TikTok really seem to be the ones most important for young people overall. But when we look at this, um, what's really important is what sort of content gets watched. Now, a lot of it is actually mainstream content because all the big news agencies are putting their content into social media formats. And often they actually are resourced well enough to adapt their content for those forms. So the BBC sends content that it produces online through all these channels. So does Sky News, so does Channel 4 News. You find them on a great variety of platforms, actually. And actually, that allows them sometimes to tailor their content. So in Germany, the equivalent of kind of your BBC News at Six program, the Tagesschau in Germany, so many of the young people became kind of a bit of a running joke in every focus group. Someone would mention the Tagesschau app. It's like the BBC News app. Actually, quite a few of them had it on their phone. Now, not that they look at it every three minutes, but it's kind of one of those things that's there. On social media, they notice some of these sources. So... Again, it is a bit more eclectic. It's not that you sit down at six o'clock or seven o'clock and watch the news, but it's still some of that content that comes through as well. Now, so we need to be quite careful. The content that, that gets consumed there is a mix of kind of established media outlets with non-established media outlets, blogs, and things like influencers. But when we, and, and there the media competency comes in, like how do I distinguish between them? If I do this, I think there could be something really positive there because you get a more diversified set of views potentially. If I don't have the media competency and put them all next to each other, I might have a problem. But what's really interesting, and that's a final point, um, when we talk with them about influencers on political information, it was interesting. For some young people, this was a really positive thing, particularly those who engage politically online and offline. Those who only engaged online they were actually, so there's often a bit of a stereotype that young people who engage only online politically, they that's kind of the, the less real engagement. 
But it's interesting, that wasn't the case. There is a group that just doesn't engage at all, uh, kind of, uh, with politics online. That's, there wasn't much criticism. But the group that engages only online, a lot of them said, did this very purposefully. So they had very utilitarian arguments. They were saying, I can be one person in 100,000 in a demonstration, I can be online and spend 30 minutes in the forum correcting everyone uh, for factual mistakes. So there was, for some of them, they said, actually, online I have a greater reach. Now, I'm not making a judgment whether that's right or wrong, but actually for some of them, online engagement was a really deliberate choice. And they, those who made it as a deliberate choice, a minority of them, but for those ones, they understood algorithms better than I did. Um, they understood the algorithms. They were really critical of influences on politics because they said most of them still were also branded sponsoring at the same time and so on. So it was really, really interesting to see. In other words, the short story is young people's political information behavior overall, yes, social media plays a big role, but actually it's quite heterogeneous. There isn't this one singular profile like there isn't in the rest of the population. So it's different. It has shifted, but it's shifted in quite different pronunciations. Mm -hmm. Now, we're obviously coming to the end. I've got a few more questions. Um, we've been really positive and we've been looking at, obviously, movements trying to bring about change. Is there much evidence of opposition to lowering the vote, perhaps from older voters or particular political parties. What's your view on that? Yeah, there often is quite big opposition. Pretty much everywhere that the voting age is lowered, initially there's a majority against it. So in Scotland, um, uh, before the debate about lowering the voting age, only about 30% of the adult public were in favor. That's quite normal, actually. Um, so there was majority against lowering the voting age. But we should remember, whenever you ask a person in a survey a question, you should interpret their response as, this is their response being asked the question. Most people never think about something like the voting age. For most people, this is not kind of an everyday topic, right? Most people don't wake up every day and think, goodness me, it would be terrible if other people could, you know, this is something, <laughs> if I ask people, their intuition is no. When young people get the vote and it's we see a positive process like in Scotland, and in particular, once it transcends the party political boundaries. So in the Scottish independence referendum, I said initially the conservatives were against, they later changed their view. But we had parties on both sides of the independence debate in favor. SP and Greens were in favor on the pro-independence side, Liberal Democrats and Labour on the anti-independence side were also in favor. That helped depoliticize that to some extent. And what we saw in Scotland was that by late 2015, when the Electoral Commission polled the public, 60% were in favor of lowering the voting age for all elections UK-wide. So basically it had doubled. So the message is, yes, there seems to be opposition initially. Some of this, I think also 10 years ago, as I said, we didn't have the data. It's based on a lot of assumptions. We now don't need to make assumptions anymore. We actually have a fairly good picture of what happens. There's still more that we can research, but we have a fairly, nothing bad happens. That's that's my core message. How good it is, you know, how positive the positives are differs, but nothing bad happens from it. So we have the evidence on this, I think, and we can kind of, people can sleep well, you know, country is not, you know, running into trouble. Um, so that's, that's now clear. 
Um, but the main thing for people is seeing it because if it, if it happens well, young people do become involved. A lot of people are simply surprised. And we see even something a bit we, that's called reverse socialization. If 16, 17 year olds become more engaged, they start talking about this at home. So we typically, right, we think about young people as being influenced by their parents that they are. But young people who become engaged often influence their parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts. So we actually see also um, a much more interesting debate around these issues. Now, there's more research that needs to go into this, but we see indications of that already. And I think that is why we see shifts of patterns, because when people see young people engage more, they're often surprised that, you know, there are really interesting points that are being brought forward. Finally, then, as we come to the end of this really fascinating conversation, um, do you look forward just generally in terms of the work you're doing with a sense of, you know, positive optimism in terms of votes for young people at the age of 16? I, yes, I think it's, it's, I do think, I think there are a lot of things in the world at the moment that can uh, make one a bit despondent at times. There's a reason why I really like um, political participation, research and engagement work with young people, because what we see often is, and I think that's how I would describe it. Young people are much less dogmatic than older people. They have strong views, but they are also open to conversation. Um, we've seen this in, in 2014. I remember the Scottish independence referendum. It was really interesting because I worked with the BBC a bit on, they created this panel of 16, 17 year olds to bring them more into debates because they said, basically we only have young people ever on TV if it's about schools, or if crime gets committed, kind of, and it's exam day, that's the other one, right? It's, we don't ask them about what they think about politics, but they think about the same topics. So I created this panel and brought them in. It was really interesting. They had some debates with politicians there, and the young people's questions were often much less answer-oriented. So rather than asking, oh, should you resign or so, they ask, so what would you be your policy on this? What would you do on this? And if a politician came back to them with basically a personal story, they said, yeah, but I asked you about tax policy. So it resulted in Scotland in the final TV debate around the Scottish independence referendum, some people might remember, was a debate where the BBC decided to put the entire audience was made up of 16 and 17 year olds. Because one of the reasons was they ask really good questions. They are really engaged. And that's something I'm hopeful for. What political parties need to do across the political spectrum is take them seriously and engage with them. And young people have views across the political spectrum. Yes, at the moment, they are more likely to vote center-left parties. Yes. But that's partially because they don't feel addressed by others. But they're young people with market liberal views out there. And... I want political parties to take young people seriously, engage with them, because they do have different viewpoints of things and are willing. I think that is what sometimes I think a lot of adults, especially on polarized debates, are actually less good at. They are willing to engage in discussions about issues very often. So embracing that, even if the style is sometimes a bit different, um, maybe and a bit yeah more active, so to speak, I think there's a real opportunity. And I think more and more parties, organizations are realizing this. And I think it could refresh quite a few debates that, that exist. Jan, can I say it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you today. I think we've ended there on a really, really positive uh, note. So thank you for sharing that. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to the Independent Teacher Podcast. 
If you like listening to this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star rating either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.